0: Well, over the last seven weeks, we have worked our way through the first three chapters of Paul letters to the Philippians, leaving us with one chapter left to go. The last four passages of Philippians lined up very well with the four weeks of Advent. And honestly, the next passage in Philippians, beginning of chapter four, uh, works pretty well as a day after Christmas message as well. But even so, I decided it'd be best to, to take a week off from Philippians and to focus on the narrative in the gospel of Luke immediately following the birth of Jesus. A portion of our passage this morning has come to be known as the nunc dimittis. Those are the first two words in the Latin translation of the Song of Simeon. Nunc dimittis means now dismiss or now let depart. That is, now let me die. What would lead a person to joyfully pray to God, now, now I can depart in peace, peace. Lord, let me die. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. You can find it on page 59 in the second half of the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. We'll start by reading through verse 32. Hear the word of the Lord to you. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that in beholding Jesus, we may be given the spiritual eyes to see salvation in him. and We may be prepared to depart from this world in peace. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, chapter two of Luke begins with the birth narrative, with the King of King and Lord of Lords born, not in a palace or even in a hospital, but in a room akin to a stable. He is lain not in a crib or even on a cushioned throne, but in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. He is surrounded, not by other kings and noblemen, but by shepherds of stinking sheep. And after finding the child lying in a manger, the shepherds return to their fields. Nothing unusual, nothing supernatural, nothing miraculous happens the next day, or the day after that, or the day after that. The child must be fed and changed like any other child. Joseph, Mary, and and the child all try to get naps whenever they can. Mary asks Joseph, So what do we do now? Joseph shrugs. We raise the child in accord with all that God has spoken. And so at the end of eight days, they do what they are supposed to do. They have him circumcised according to the law given through Moses. They name him Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And given the culture in which we live, we must note that it was Jesus who was conceived in the womb. It was not a clump of cells that would at some unidentifiable point become Jesus. It was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, just as it was John the Baptist who leapt for joy in his mother's womb upon hearing the voice of Mary as she carried Jesus in hers. It's in the previous chapter. This is the constant, unambiguous witness of Scripture and of theology and of philosophy and of science. Life begins at conception. The very moment the child's unique DNA is formed. Arguing that though life begins at conception, personhood begins at some arbitrary time later is nonsense. Biblically, theologically, philosophically, and scientifically, nonsense. It is a self-deluded attempt to justify child sacrifice. Sacrificing the child for the convenience of the parents. The pregnancy of Mary before she was married to Joseph was certainly not convenient For either of them. But as Mary declared when Gabriel brought her the news, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought the child up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle does, or two young pigeons. So while we had the rite of circumcision in verse 21, in the second half of 22 and 23, we have two other Old Covenant rites. The rite of post-birth purification and the rite of firstborn redemption. You can read about the, the first two rites, circumcision and purification, in Leviticus chapter 12. Circumcision is pretty straightforward. That's what happened in verse 21. But what is this purification spoken of in the first half of chapter of verse 22? Well, forty days, forty days after the birth of a son, the mother, quote, shall bring to the priest a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he, the priest, shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from her flow of blood. It's not that, that losing blood is sinful. But when lifeblood leaves your body, as in the delivery of a child, when, when lifeblood leaves your body, lifeblood is, is no longer alive, and thus you are considered to have come into contact with death. Death is the enemy of life. It's the most unclean thing imaginable. So contact with death makes you ceremonially unclean, reminding you of humanity's sinfulness before the Lord and of your desperate need for atonement. Hence, the rite of purification involving a sin offering 40 days after giving birth. Like everyone who has ever lived, Mary needed to be redeemed from the guilt of her sin. She needed forgiveness. The passage in Leviticus 12 continues And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's what Luke draws attention to. They brought two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So, it would appear that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were poor. They could not afford a lamb. It appears the wise men had not yet made their way to Mary and Joseph with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which definitely would have helped to buy a lamb. That doesn't appear to have happened for many months. So that's circumcision and, and purification, but again, there's a third old covenant right here. The second half of verse 22, verse 23, the old covenant right of firstborn redemption. Verse 23 is not an exact quotation, but rather a paraphrase of Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13. So what happened in the previous 12 chapters of of Exodus? Well, God had brought 10 horrific plagues upon the Egyptians. God had done so to demonstrate his power to execute judgment over his enemies and to save his people from their enslavement to another master. The 10th and most tragic of the plagues involved the angel of death, striking dead every firstborn child in Egypt, whether of man or of livestock. Well, that is, of course, except for the firstborn of the Israelites. And how was it that the angel of death distinguished between an Egyptian and an Israelite household? Well, every Israelite had been instructed to slaughter a lamb and to spread the blood of the lamb on the lintel and on the two doorposts over the house, so that the angel, upon seeing the blood of the lamb, would pass over that house. Every year, every Israelite was required to remember that event with the celebration of the Passover feast and with the sacrifice of another Passover lamb. And when a woman gave birth to her first son, she was to redeem the child by paying his redemption price. See, all of this was to be a reminder that the Israelites were not spared, the Israelites were not spared from those 10 horrific plagues because they were any less sinful than the Egyptians. They clearly were not. They were no less deserving of God's punishment, but God chose to show them mercy. And the sacrifice of the lamb and then the redemption price paid upon the birth of a son but pointed to their need for someone to die in their place to make them clean. And like so many other Israelite parents before them, Mary and Joseph walked into Jerusalem 40 days after the birth of their first son, carrying two birds and five shekels, designed to remind them of their need for redemption. But unlike any who had ever come before them or who has ever come after them, they came carrying the child pointed to by every sacrifice that had ever been offered in Israel. They bore in their hands the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he has no need for any priest to offer a sacrifice on his account. For he came into the world to offer once and for all the only sacrifice that can atone for our sin, the sacrifice of himself. But he couldn't at least simply beam down from heaven onto the cross to die for our sins. No, from birth, he had to live the perfect life of obedience that we have all failed to live. He had to abide by every jot and tittle of the law, He had to dot every I and cross every T so that he might be the one true lamb without blemish. Everything was done in accord with the law of the Lord. Verse 25 Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What does it mean that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel? What comforting, what consoling was Israel waiting for? Notice how the same sentiment is described down in verse 38 of our passage, where the prophetess Anna speaks of the child to, quote, all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. What were the Jews anticipating? They were anticipating a Savior, described in verse 26 as the Lord's Christ. Christos is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach which we pronounce in English as Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. It's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the king of the Jews. But by the time of the first century, by this time in history, Messiah in Christ, Messiah Christos, they had come to be used specifically to refer to the promised king that would come from the line of David. It had been foretold through Micah 5 that his kingdom would extend to the ends of the earth, bringing peace after being born in Bethlehem. And the peace that most first century Jews had in mind, well, it was the liberation of Israel from the oppressive rule of the Romans. But that was short-sighted. For the Lord's Christ was the one promised to come from the line of Abraham, the one through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12. And in Isaiah 49, God speaks to the Christ saying this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He's the savior of the world. He is the one promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with the giving of the curse. The one promised who would come to crush Satan and to reverse the curse that hangs so heavy upon this world. And so we read in verse 27 of our passage, Simeon came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Something absolutely amazing just happened in verse 27. Do you notice it? They brought in the child Jesus to the temple. What was most devastating about the fall of mankind back in Eden in Genesis chapter 3? It wasn't the curse of pain and suffering in life. It wasn't even the curse of death. It was being cast out of the dwelling presence of God on the earth for the purpose of all of creation is for God to dwell with his people on the earth. This is what was so amazing about the Exodus. God began to visibly dwell alongside humanity on the earth once again. First in the pillar of cloud by day and then the pillar of fire by night. And then as a cloud of fire in the tabernacle that the Israelites carried through the wilderness until the temple was built in Jerusalem. But that temple in Jerusalem where God visibly dwelt, was destroyed in 586 B.C. And as many of the Israelites were taken captive into Babylon. A generation later, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And the Persians, as God had foretold, permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so they did. They made their way back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple and then nothing. God's visible presence never appeared in that new temple. Hundreds of years passed. No presence of God, no miracles, no prophets, no peace. And what the faithful Jews like Simeon and Anna were waiting for, what those who had studied their Bible were waiting for, those who studied Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3, what they were most longing for, what the whole creation was groaning for, was for the visible presence of God to return to the earth. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. in verse 27 of our passage, for the first time ever, the visible dwelling presence of God was carried into that temple. And Simeon took God, the son incarnate up in his arms and declared, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now let me depart in peace. God has come to his temple. It was a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. We read about in Revelation 21.3, when the voice from the throne will declare, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the salvation that God the Son came to bring, a people made clean by his blood, that we might dwell in his presence forever. Verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Well, yeah. Now, yes, an angel had appeared to Mary and an angel had appeared to Joseph in private. And yes, there had been a miraculous virgin conception. And yes, shepherds had suddenly appeared on the night of his birth. But 40 days had passed. Well over a month. And now in Jerusalem, some random priest suddenly picks up their baby and declares that he can now die in peace. You would marvel too. Verse 34. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon's words suddenly take on a very different tone. Great opposition lies ahead of this child. As the NIV renders it, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. The language of Isaiah chapter 8 comes to mind. The language of Isaiah chapter 8 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, is quoted by Peter in in 1 Peter chapter 2 and elsewhere. Isaiah says in chapter 8 that God himself, God will become a sanctuary for some but a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to others. And that those who stumble upon it, that is those who stumble over the the cornerstone of the new sanctuary, the spiritual temple, will fall and be broken. You see, in bringing salvation, Jesus also brings division. A great sifting. Some of the Jews of his day received him as their king, but most refused. From those revered by the people as being most devout, the Pharisees, to the religious establishment, the, the high priests and the Sanhedrin, to the crowds chanting, crucify him, crucify him. When confronted with the claims of Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts were revealed. Many who outwardly identified as Jews, as God's people, were exposed as frauds. They refused to accept this messianic king, who rather than condemning the Gentiles, outwardly condemned Israel who rather than announcing the immediate liberation from the Romans, announced the coming judgment for Israel. He didn't come to bring the deliverance they had been hoping for, and so they killed him. The deliverance that they most needed was not the deliverance that they most wanted. The salvation they required was not the salvation they desired. And even after his resurrection from the dead, They weren't willing to accept the truth that God himself had become a man to die a horrific death in their place in order to make them clean. They weren't willing to publicly identify as disciples of a Galilean carpenter who was gruesomely executed as an enemy of the state. They weren't willing to identify with him. They weren't willing to to suffer persecution at the hands of both the Jewish religious authorities and the Roman governing authorities. They weren't willing to suffer ostracism from their friends and their family and their employers. And as the message of salvation spread beyond Israel and as it continues to spread today, once confronted with Jesus, you will either stumble over this rock and be broken or you will take your stand upon this rock and be raised to glory. He is the child appointed for the falling and the rising of many. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, Paul writes this, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus left no room for neutrality. The notion that you can revere Jesus as a good moral teacher without believing that he died and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of the sins, that notion is rubbish. Jesus took that option off the table. He took it off the table when he claimed that he was going to die in the place of his people and then to rise from the grave to atone for their sins. Matthew 26, 28. Jesus took that option off the table when he claimed that he had been sent into the world and that he was returning back to the presence of the Father to be glorified with the glory that he had before the world was ever created. John seventeen five. Jesus took it off the table when he claimed to be Yahweh, the great I am saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, John 8, 58. And Jesus took it off the table when he proved all these things to be true by actually rising from the grave, as witnessed by more than 500 people who testified to having seen him, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote to Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't ex- accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman. Or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Make your choice. Stumble over or stand upon this rock. Verse 36. 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84, or it might actually say for another 84 years. We're not sure. Either way, a lifetime spent waiting, a lifetime spent waiting for her eternal bridegroom. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in God's people to this day. We await our savior from heaven. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, that is to speak of the child, Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, this is another work of the Holy Spirit within God's people to this day. Those who have been given the spiritual eyes to see Jesus rightly, to see who he is, necessarily speak of him to others. Verse 39. And when they, Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You'll notice that Luke here skips over the visit of the wise men from the east. And Luke skips over the flight of the family first to Egypt before returning to Nazareth. Much like Matthew skips over many things. Matthew skips over Gabriel appearing to Mary. Matthew skips over the angels appearing to the shepherds in their fields. Matthew skips over this account of Simeon and Anna, and the next account in Luke of Jesus being in the temple at the age of 12. You see, none of the four gospels claim to record everything that there was to tell. They exist to supplement one another. They they were all written for a reason. There's a reason we have four. God has spoken to us through his word so that we might be given the spiritual eyes to see salvation in this child, so that we might be prepared to depart from this world in peace, having seen Jesus, knowing who is awaiting us in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. Work in us what you worked in Simeon and in Anna in that temple. Grant us the eyes to see and the hearts to believe. Bless the preaching of your word in and for the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.